0: Welcome to the Traveling Image Makers Podcast, your source of inspiration about travel photography. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride as we bring you on a tour around the world with our guests. So welcome to another episode of the Traveling Image Makers Podcast. And today we have the opportunity to chat with a uh, traveler, photographer, master equipment reviewer, food and coffee lover, and just super nice guy and good friend of mine, Gordon Lang of uh, Camera Labs. Hi, Gordon. How are you doing? Bon- and what's new in your world?
1: Buongiorno, Hugo. Thank you very much for having me uh, on your show. And hello, Ralph. How are you? I'm real good.
2: Thanks. Uh, very nice to meet you online here.
1: I loved your introduction, Hugo. You summed me up. We can end the show now. That's all I want people to know. <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay, well,
1: good. <laughs> the truth can't get out. The truth can't get out. No,
0: that's it. We'll do it. And yeah, as uh, we already heard, Ralph, uh, are you currently still in Portugal, Ralph?
2: Yep. Right now I'm in uh, Belém, which is uh, just outside of Lisbon. Yeah, enjoying myself. It's great, great country.
0: Yeah, great place. Um, Mm-hmm. What about you, Gordon? I heard you just uh, returned from a trip to the US. What was the yes, I was, occasion of your oh, trip there?
1: Yeah, I was in New York for a few days testing the new Sony Alpha A9, which is uh, Sony's highest end mirrorless camera today. It's a kind of pro sports and event photographer's camera. And it, they're, they're being very ambitious with its pricing and its specification, really trying to go up against the kind of people who shoot with an an eos 1dx mark ii or a nikon d5 so that's pretty pretty high aspirations and in some ways they're beating them in other ways they're still playing catch up but it's a very ambitious camera and from what i've used of it so far it's extremely impressive so if you go to CameraLabs.com, you'll see my kind of rolling coverage of that and depending on when you view or listen to this podcast video i may have even completed the review so check it out and uh, see what you think if you're interested in that camera
2: before we start, uh, can you tell our audience a little bit more about you? I know Ugo got into a little bit of an introduction, but uh, you know, when and how did you come up with the idea for Camera Labs? How long did it take you f- for you know for you to become one of the premier sites for people to come to for camera uh, and lens reviews? I
1: love that. You, you used that to Scrooge. This sounds like uh, I, I said, look, guys. Here's what I want you to say about me. Premier science. <laughs> of it. I, didn't, I didn't write any of this. It's so all very, true. It's all I'm true. Very flattered. I'm very flattered <laughs> that you think that. I've actually been a journalist for um, 25 years. It's the only job I've ever had. Straight out of university, I started, uh, I joined a magazine in the UK, in London, and started reviewing technical equipment, computer equipment. Um, but... I've been interested in photography since I was a little kid, you know, I was, I've was i been actually shooting film longer than I was shooting digital, you know, every single format that you could imagine. So when I started reviewing computer equipment, it was at the time in the early 90s that digital cameras first came on the scene. And they were computer peripherals, you know, there was nothing user friendly about them. They all used, you know, old style nine pin serial ports. Half the time they didn't have screens on them. They were too expensive. No one had LCDs of that kind of size or quality back then. So the conversation came up in the editorial department. Should we be reviewing digital cameras and do we know anyone who's interested in photography? And I was like, yeah, I'm the new boy and I'm interested in it. So. I started reviewing cameras straight away. So I was reviewing them for magazines and newspapers and a bit of broadcast. And and then after about 10 years of doing this in print, the internet kind of really took off. I mean, it's amazing to sort of talk about it now as something that wasn't always there. But it was really kind of in the late 90s that people really started to do, you know, a, a decent amount of uh, editorial content online. In particular, pioneers like uh, Filaski on DP Review and also Imaging Resource, Dave Etchells, all those guys, DC Resource as well, Tom's Hardware and uh, Anantech on the technical side, all really... stink what online journalism could be using massively detailed technical reviews and i would look at them quite enviously because on a magazine or a newspaper you've got to be very strict about your word count typically you may only be writing 500 or 800 or a thousand words on a product so you've got to be very disciplined and if you're a freelancer and you're only being paid by the word that also limits how much time you can spend on something so i was being frustrated partly by what you could earn from this and secondly in the kind of detail you could go into so I was seeing what these guys were doing online. and I thought, you know what? That's for me. So I started Camera Labs in, oh, it was about 12 years ago now. Um, so about 2005, as a place where I could really be very self-indulgent and and start publishing the reviews that I always wanted to write, that I always wanted to read. And at first, like most websites that are started by individuals, it was non-commercial. You know, you start off with no readers at all, zero traffic. So of course, it made no money. So I was still having to write, I was sort of doing two jobs at the same time. Uh, And it was at that time that I actually moved to New Zealand for a few years. And I was really concentrating on growing camera labs at that point. And after about a year and a half, it had grown to a point where it begun to earn enough money for me to start reducing my magazine work. And then after about two years, I'd reduced, I'd basically stopped writing for the magazines and was writing solely for camera labs, which is what I've been doing ever since so all of the stuff that i write now is uh, is on cameralabs.com. um if you visited the site thank you very much it you'll you'll see that i do very very in-depth reviews they can run to about twenty thousand words long which which is immense you know like a small novel and you'll you'll gather from my chat that you know i, I don't have like going on but i try and make them approachable you know i do a lot of travel i've, I've traveled with ugo a lot I'd love, to, I'd love to see you as well, Ralph. You know, I, I love traveling. I love taking pictures as I go along. So it allows me to test these cameras in lots of interesting places. So there's pictures of nice places, pictures of nice food, because I love to eat. I love to drink. There's always nice pictures of coffee, hopefully. So the sample images are not just the same old pictures again and again. So I hope that even though they are very... Detailed reviews that they're also fun and approachable, and, and hopefully you'll also have discovered a uh, podcast that I do for every review with uh, Doug Kane, California, and that's just another a kind of another element, another side of it because people like to consume content in different ways. So I have the written content, I have the social content, you know, on Instagram and Twitter. I'm Camera Labs on both of those, obviously Facebook as well, and uh, the written stuff uh, at labs.com, the podcast, videos, YouTube, the the whole thing. So I do it all. I do it all. There's no way to escape. Hopefully, you've seen some of it.
0: <laughs> and the book. I mean, the uh, comes the into it. I mean, the, the reason why we are here today, and it's uh, mostly to talk about your book. When you and what you said before, like you like, uh, uh, like writing camera reviews and going very in depth about cameras, so you're kind of a gearhead but also traveling and travel plays a lot of uh, part in in your book, uh, lots of different locations and and beautiful pictures. I mean, it's, uh, it's great that uh, I mean, reading your reviews, it becomes apparent that you just like taking pictures and it's uh, the, the perspective of those reviews is not overly technical, though it's very, though it's very detailed, but it's uh, from the perspective of somebody who just loves using those cameras. So, about the book, the title of the book is In Camera. Uh, it was released some time ago, but due to some snafus with uh, mail or whatever, I only got it in my hands a few days ago. So, uh, but I'm really loving it and starting browsing through it. Thank you. Uh, it's a collection of very fine images. Uh, each one is accompanied by a bit of a, a backstory, details of how you made the shot and then camera settings. Uh, each picture you can know it's uh, aperture shutter speed and conditions white balance and so on you were taking and um and a precious tip with with everyone so i love it even more seeing that many of those pictures were taken during trips that we took together like to scotland england ireland and so on and uh well the the thing about the book is that it's not just a coffee table book with a collection of nice images and, and tips uh, and gear information and so on. But it's also an illustration of your approach to photography, which is uh, mm. hinted at by the title, which is in camera. So can you please explain why in camera? What, what does it mean?
1: Well, most simply it means delivering an image that was produced inside the camera alone so that means no post no post processing outside of the camera no shooting in raw and taking that file into photoshop or lightroom and tweaking it uh, to you know until it's been bent out of all shape and form now i should say before i go any further that i know um, there are certain styles of photography that really do demand post processing i also appreciate that some people really enjoy post-processing, sometimes more than the actual capture process itself. But that's not to say that it's the only way. And I was finding that over the past few years that a lot of new photographers and even experienced ones that I've been speaking to have assumed that you need to, in all situations, shoot and raw and post-process, that the actual capture was only one half or even less than one half of of the final image. And that didn't really tally with my own experiences. First of all, again, going back to when I was a kid and I was shooting in film, even though I had a dark room at home, my mum was good enough to let me convert a couple of bathrooms in various houses that we lived and black them out. And, you know, I did do some processing and did, you know, you can dodge and burn in the dark room. But there was a kind of, uh, approach that you would take to your photography especially with film where you've only got a certain number of frames where you would really try and get it right there wasn't this oh i'll fix it later attitude you would try and get it right in camera as you took the picture so that was kind of one half of it the whole kind of technique side of it that that i, I feel has been lost by a, a lot of photographers but then the other thing i noticed at the, you know when digital photography first started the images they were producing were not very good it wasn't just that they were very low resolution it was that they processing in camera wasn't wasn't very authentic to the to what you were seeing the colors weren't very good the tones weren't very good they looked electronic and you know back in those days you really did as soon as the raw files became available you really did need to shoot in raw and process them very carefully yourself to get a decent result but what i was noticing as i was testing more and more cameras because i've tested pretty much all of them is that they were getting better with every generation. Their JPEGs were getting better. The RAWs weren't getting better because that's just the raw data, but the JPEGs with every generation of camera were getting better and better and better, particularly so on the mirrorless cameras. Um, Now, I first really got into mirrorless cameras, and I think we'll probably talk about that a little bit later, so I won't say too much now. But I first got into them for their electronic composition, not their size, but the fact that you could preview anything on the screen or in the viewfinder when you're shooting with a dslr in a black and white mode you don't know you're shooting blind if you're shooting through the viewfinder you have to imagine what black and white looks like uh, if you change the white balance you have to imagine have i got it right and you don't know until you play back the picture or process it later but with a mirrorless camera you can view live as you're composing what the what the picture is going to look like you can deploy all manner of uh, focusing and compositional aids To help you get it right and if if it doesn't look right or if it's slightly squint or too bright or too dark or too red or too green you can change it so the combination of all these things this idea that you know there is this immense satisfaction in in getting the composition and the technical side of it right in camera the ability to preview everything with modern mirrorless cameras or in live view on a dslr and the fact that the jpeg processing engines are good enough now I was finding that every picture that I was taking, for example, on the trips that I was on, on with you ago, I wasn't doing anything to them. The JPEGs that I was getting out of the, say, the Olympus and the Fujifilm cameras that I was using were good enough. They were already, the. Vi- <laughs> it sounds very grand, doesn't it? The vision that I had for the image, you know, they were, they were, and when I say good enough, that sounds like it's, oh, you know, it's a bit of a compromise. You know, this, this fish and chips is good enough. No, it's not. It's not that it's good enough. It's, it's really good. So I started posting all these images socially and people would keep asking me. They'd say, uh, what settings did you use? You know, in Lightroom, how did you process this? I said, I didn't process it at all. This is a JPEG out of camera and they wouldn't believe me. I said, no, look, this is this, this is that. I mean, some of them, yeah, inevitably look a bit like kind of postcardy snaps. But some of them, especially the long exposure stuff, can look quite dramatic. And and I thought, you know what, there's a book in this. So I started gathering stories together and background to, uh, to do an ebook originally but then the publisher of my first book Digital Retro which was a, a history of home computers in the 70s and 80s sounds horrendous actually a very interesting book <laughs> if you're interested in that sort of thing it's like coffee table computer porn um, They he said look do you want to do a, an actual physical book of this I was like sure and I think Ilex who are the publishers of this book, they've done a great job so I, I provided them uh, 100 pictures they're all jpegs out of camera they're um, all coincidentally shot with mirrorless cameras but that's not necessary, but just a coincidence. And they've laid it out. We kind of, I wrote it and they laid it out like a cookery book. So as you say, you go, we've got, you know, the picture on one side and we've got effectively the recipe on the other a kind of description of what you're looking at, what it is, why, why I took it, you know, it can be used as a travel book, not just as a, you know, photography book. So you might think, oh, I fancy looking at that. That's the Sagrada Familia in uh, in Barcelona so you think oh, I fancy seeing that where is it so I'll tell you where it is why I did it how I did it what challenges there were and then as you say the settings and some tips so it's a book that you can very easily flick through you don't have to read it from cover to cover you can dip in and go oh yeah that looks interesting that's a that's a building in in Chicago um flick through see what you like see what I did they're always my favorite photography books the ones where you'd look through and you'd see the pictures that inspired you and you think. I really want to take a picture like that, or in fact, I want to take a picture exactly like that. So that's what I've tried to do here, a book that, that hopefully inspires you to go out and take pictures and and hopefully realize that you can achieve quite a lot in camera without any post-processing.
2: Gordon, let me ask you, is, is that way of photographing, is that uh, a good way for uh, for travel photography, for fast-moving markets, street photography? Is that way of shooting Uh, you know a way to you know to get those types of images or is this you know landscape on a tripod where you've got uh, you know you've got time
1: I'd say for both I mean for travel when I'm traveling I'm spending a lot of time actually doing the traveling, you know, driving in a car or in a plane, doing doing the miles. Then I want to see the sights and then I want to go out and have some delicious food. What I don't want to be doing is sat in a hotel room post-processing my images. and, And I think most of us, if we follow a bunch of photographers, which I'm sure we do on social, the amount of times I see people say, oh, here's a picture I took three years ago but i've only just got around to processing it and i think well that's a shame well it's nice to revisit your older stuff and maybe try to a fresh you know approach a, approach it with different eyes or different ideas on processing it but at the same time when i take a picture i want to start using it now i want to see it now you know I, I want it to represent a kind of real-time journey so i would say it's very applicable to travel because it means you can get your images out there get them seen get you know um uh, without wasting time doing your post when you should be seeing more sites. Right. Also, the important thing is, is and I've done this before, and there's an example of this in the book. I visited uh, Venice, uh, which is obviously a, a fantastic, fantastic destination. And, and there was a picture that I always wanted to take a kind of longish exposure of the Grand Canal. It's a picture everyone takes um, from one of the famous bridges. And I took them, and I thought they were all right. I thought the pictures were going to be okay. And then when I got them home, I realized that there'd been a problem with my filter system. Now, this wasn't something that I could have corrected in RAW. This wasn't a problem that I shot JPEG. Although I should say I also still always shoot RAW plus JPEG, partly for insurance, for backup, just in case. It's just that I never use them, but I've got them just in case, and I would still recommend people do that. Um, but the pictures, they didn't, they didn't look right. And I I was able to go back the following night and retake the same pictures, except correcting the technical mistakes I'd made, and that was because I'd reviewed them and you know while I was on site. Whereas a lot of people who shoot RAW and think, well, I'll just process it later, they may not get a chance to to really examine those pictures and see whether they are you know what what they'd hoped to capture. So that really helped me there. But yeah, I've seen people. Uh, do fantastic uh, street photography uh, there's a guy I know called uh, Matt Hart uh, who's a UK based street photographer does some fantastic stuff with the Fuji system I believe those are uh, all um, or mostly straight out of camera but equally so that's very fast moving uh, photography but equally landscape photographers um, which I, I am probably more than than street also succeeding with without camera photography i think it's applicable to all styles apart from if you say into very heavy hdr because that you know in its nature even though some cameras do have hdr modes built into them now really that is that does involve post-processing where you're or frame blending where you're saying i'm going to take this from this frame this from that frame and that's a different thing and it's fine and it can produce some really nice results sometimes it can produce some really frightening results it's just not what i'm into uh, so uh, yeah, I'd say it's applicable to everything. So
0: I was uh, wanting to ask if you ever take uh, shoot raw plus JPEG, but I guess you already answered that question. So <laughs> yeah, Ugo. I
1: mean, to to follow to follow on from that, I do shoot raw and I do process raw as well sometimes, uh, but in the camera most modern cameras now allow you to process raw files in the playback menus and they'll give you nothing near what you have in lightroom but they'll let you change the white balance they'll let you adjust the exposure a little bit you know maybe uh play about with a bit of shadow or highlight detail or apply different effects so i'll frequently well not frequently but i'll i'll take a picture with say the the kind of picture style that i think will work best but safe in the knowledge that if it ends up that another one might work better i can always apply that to the raw file but again in camera let the camera generate the final jpeg you know and i'd like to think that say fujifilm knows their sensor better than adobe does so they're the best engine for processing the files from a camera is is arguably the manufacturer's processor right it should be it's not always the case, but it should be. And in some cases it is. So use their, use their raw processing engine, but do it in camera. It's amazing what you can do. So I would encourage people to explore that. But still, yes, I'm not going to say just shoot raw, Turn just shoot JPEG, turn off raw. I would advocate shooting raw plus JPEG, but try your hardest to try and get that JPEG right first time, because there's immense satisfaction in doing that.
0: I do shoot raw plus JPEG, especially now that I've got the... The X-T2, which has two SD card slots, so I should RAW to one and JPEG to the other one. But then, uh, I'm still geared towards processing on a computer. And I'm pretty fast at that. I try to spend no more than five, ten minutes on an image. And I shoot RAW and then I I shoot the JPEG just in case. It's not like you should JPEG and then RAW just in case. I do the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> RAW and JPEG in case I want to yeah post it immediately online. I, I have the JPEG
1: yeah i mean the most important thing is to find a you know you could say this i could say that and we all listen and read from a lot of different photographers and a lot of different opinions the most important thing is to find something that works for you that delivers the pictures that you want you know i mean you could be struggling for ages trying to emulate someone else's technique and then you find another one or tweak it and think hey this really works for me i've got the pictures that i want and most importantly you're enjoying it it shouldn't be a process it's like you know, working out when you go to the gym, someone might say, right, you've got to do this exercise. You say I hate that exercise, but yeah, I want to be fit. So you fi- you try it all. And then you're like, Hey, I really like tennis. or I really like swimming or parachuting or whatever it is. You've got to find what works for you. This is just what works for me. And y- what, what's really great is that we can all describe our, you know, our ideas and people can try them out and, yeah. you know, hopefully get, get something from that. But yeah, I'm not trying to force people into doing things a certain way. Just saying that this is, this is a way you can do it. And it works for me. And, um, you know, it's it's nice to see. I I hope that you don't necessarily have to go down the post-processing line, especially with uh, the JPEG engines of, say, Olympus and Fuji, which produce really, really lovely JPEGs. Really, really lovely.
2: Gordon, you're a gear expert. So let's talk a little bit more about gear for a bit. Uh, You obviously receive a lot of cameras and lenses to review, uh, as demonstrated by the range uh, you know, that of cameras that you've used in your book. Um, they've, they include Fujifilm, Sony, Panasonic, Olympus. Uh, I'm not going to ask uh, which is your favorite brand, <laughs> but uh, you seem to have a preference for the mirrorless system. And it sounds like all the pictures in that book were made with the, the mirrorless system. Why, why is that? Is that a coincidence or what?
1: No, it's because I, I most of my personal work is shot with uh, mirrorless cameras. It really I'll tell you how it started i was it started with the first dslr with live view which was the canon eos 40d and one of my other hobbies is astrophotography and one of the hardest things with astrophotography especially when you're shooting through a telescope is focusing it very hard there's no auto focus on a telescope you got to focus it very carefully manually by hand and there's no assistance when you're doing that. There's no magnification or anything. You're, you're just, what you see through the eyepiece or, you know, through the camera's viewfinder, the, you know, that that's what you're having to focus with. It's, it's very hard. And you, because sometimes the images are so dark, you can't use traditional split focusing screens either. Sometimes you actually have to remove them. Um, and the bottom line is that you look at your pictures and you'll be like, it's a little bit soft. It wasn't very nice. Then the Canon 40D came out Uh, which was the i think the first dslr with live view and a lot of the traditional photographers and camera reviewers just thought what the hell is this about who you know why would you compose with a screen you know it's slow it's sluggish which it was um you know it what's the point but i saw the point immediately for me because finally i could actually view say the moon uh, or a star or a planet On the screen and magnify that image before I took it. By magnifying it on the screen, I could actually focus it. And I thought, this is fantastic. And then at the same time, higher and higher resolution cameras were coming out. And I was beginning to notice this I I wouldn't use the word phenomena or problem of uh, back or front focusing, which is that when you shoot with a DSLR, when you focus, A lens on a dslr through the viewfinder you're not using the information from the sensor using the information from a separate focusing module in the viewfinder head which is bounced off a mirror and you've got to trust that that camera that the distance between the back of the lens after it's bounced off the mirror and has gone into that autofocus sensor is exactly the same as the distance when the mirror flips up and it hits the sensor because if it isn't, the picture is not going to be perfectly sharp. And if you think about it, it's a, it's a miracle that it works as well as it does. But as resolutions got higher and higher, you began to notice, or I began to notice as a reviewer, that these AF modules were not always as reliable or consistent as you wanted them to be. However, shooting in live view, you were looking at the image on the screen. Oh, sorry, the image from the sensor. So if it was in focus on the center you knew the pitch was going to be in focus there was no surprise it was going to be perfect again back in the day the focusing was horrendously slow but you knew it was 100 percent accurate so these two experiences really turned me on to live view the problem with live view of course was that it was very very slow So then along came the first mirrorless cameras, which were natively live view. This is what they worked in. There was no optical backup or alternative. They only worked electronically. So they had to do it better. And at first they weren't amazing. And the EVFs, the electronic viewfinders, were not very high resolution. But I looked at them and I thought, this this is the future for me because you've got this electronic composition. I also loved the size and the weight. But that for me was always secondary. The electronic composition was primary. I loved the fact that they were small and light, though, because I was doing so much travel. And I I travel very, very light, just with a small backpack. And that's got to contain everything, computer clothes, uh, toiletries, and photography equipment. And I devote about an area about the size of a large toilet bag to uh, to my camera gear. And when I was shooting DSLRs, that was basically one camera and one big lens or two small lenses. But with mirrorless, I could either shrink that down if I wanted two lenses, or I could carry, I typically carry like six or seven lenses in the same area, and they're so small and light, it's fantastic. So I love that portability, and I was just really turned on to it. So I adopted mirrorless Micro Four Thirds when those first Micro Four Thirds cameras came out from Panasonic and Olympus, and I absolutely, absolutely loved them. So I've been shooting. I know a lot of people who you'll meet will go, oh yeah, I switched over to mirrorless a year ago or two years ago i was shooting them you know more than five years ago this was a long you know long time ago when they first came out i loved them and that's also allowed me as i've reviewed them and used them to see the autofocus systems refined to a point where for example going back to the sony a9 uh, get to a point where they're actually beating professional sports dslrs Uh, we've seen electronic viewfinders Become incredibly detailed and produce massive images as well. When you compose within a, a decent EVF like on uh, Ugo's XT2, that image is huge that is presenting in the view in, in the viewfinder, much bigger than a comparable DSLR. You go back to a DSLR and that image is tiny, and yet you also get used to the idea of previewing all of these effects that I mentioned earlier. So for me, mirrorless was the way forward. So inevitably, when I was gathering, I, would, I put together a hundred images for the um, uh for the book i thought i wonder how many of them are going to be from mirrorless. 98 of them were from mirrorless cameras two of them were from dslrs and i thought you know what let's just find two more mirrorless pictures and and just say they're they're all mirrorless if i ever do a volume two some of them will be dslr pictures as well but i just thought i'm that close to making it 100% mirrorless why not
0: so i got one more question about gear and then we'll uh, switch to different topics and uh, with all the cameras that you've tested in the field now, you you should have a clear idea of what features in the current crop of cameras make your life easier. You already mentioned some of them, like having you know, precise focusing, electronic composition, and so on. And which ones maybe need improvement? So which are the features that you cannot live without, if there is any that you haven't already mentioned? And which ones you would... Uh, If you had a direct connection to some manufacturers, which I think you you have. I do. (laughs) In a way, which features uh, would you ask them to to provide in in their future models?
1: Well, there's two things. I'll just say two things. I'll try and keep it a bit shorter. The first is I love articulated screens. I hate fixed screens. I always shoot at funny angles, very low down. Um, or from waist height or on table height while I'm sat at a table. And a screen that stays fixed in position is extremely frustrating to me. I find them very, 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 very restrictive. So I want a screen that at the very least can tilt up and tilt down because that just that just makes life so easy. I can't believe, you know, and it's funny when you look back uh, because I, I spent a lot of my life taking pictures low down, lying on the floor, lying on the floor to take a picture getting filthy wet people staring at you people not staring at you because they think obviously he's a weirdo he's lying on the floor what is going on here um i don't want to do that anymore and you know as soon as the first articulated screens came out you're like i don't need to do this anymore and this is this is brilliant so i hate it when people don't put those on i know there's arguments against oh you know what if it gets smashed off well you know maybe i'm careful super careful maybe i've been super lucky but i've never had a screen get smashed off i've never had any problems maybe and then i get some sports talk saying yeah but you've never had a basketball thrown straight at your face or a snowboard smash straight into your face and i'm like no i haven't so, but in that environment maybe i wouldn't want an articulated screen but for landscape stuff and street stuff it's particularly good because you can be very discreet with a tilting screen that's great if you're any kind of uh, if you do any kind of youtubing is that the adjective? No, not the adjective. The you know mm-hmm. are you, to, yeah, the verb to YouTube. If you do any of that, then um, you will want the screen to fully articulate and face you, right? So that mm-hmm. you can you can see what you're filming. And I do a lot of stuff where it's just me um, trying to film a piece to camera. And what you want to do is hard enough trying to get the information across and not sound like a complete nutter. Then then thing, oh, my head's been cut off, or and I know my head has been cut off. I've composed this deliberately because I've got this giant um, dwarf hat on at the moment because my head's a bit cold because i'm a baldy but anyway um i've rambled off again so an articulated screen the second thing i want i love touch screens and again i I can hear the collective groans of professionals in inverted commas going what do you need a touchscreen for well i need it to move the autofocus point quickly and easily uh yes you can click it with the buttons but you know click, click, click 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 i could do that or i could just tap it and I would prefer to just tap it. Great for movies to pull focus between uh, two subjects, near and far. Love that. If I can't have a touch screen, I'd want a really good AF joystick. And again, going back to UGO's XT2, that has got a great joystick, um, AF joystick. And we're seeing that, thankfully, on more and more kind of uh, upper mid range cameras now so like the current crop of higher end mirrorless cameras like the panasonic gh5 olympus omd em1 mark ii Fujifilm xt2 now sony's a9 finally they all have af joysticks and that's great because you hold the camera it's right under your thumb and it's great whether you're composing with the screen or you know with your eye to the viewfinder so those two things i want um an articulated screen and i want a very quick and easy way to move the autofocus area via a touch screen or an af joystick those are my two favorites.
0: Yeah, I can vouch for the articulated screen. It makes a, a lot of difference. When I was in, uh, in Venice uh, uh, that about a year ago. I was in this place. It's called the Scuola Grande di San Rocco, which is an amazing building. They have this huge room, which is all decorated with a gilded stucco and uh, frescoes by Tintoretto. So I was uh, you cannot bring a tripod in. So the first time I went there, I put my camera on the floor, basically. I had a mini tripod, but I could not compose precisely. And I, there I wanted to compose really precisely because it's a, it's a regular room. I wanted the correct perspective. I didn't want any skewed lines that I had to correct in post-processing and so on. And I could not see my screen without lying on the floor. And okay, you can lie on the floor on the street or in a field, Uh, It's okay, maybe people will, uh, you will get dirty, people will look at you as a weirdo, but I cannot lie on the floor on a Renaissance uh, room in the middle of Venice, which is basically a museum with uh, wardens that are keeping an eye on you. And they would say, well, what are you doing there? You cannot lie on the floor. So I went back this year with an articulated screen camera, and I was able to take that picture much better to, to get it really straight, Just because of that. So it's. it's I had
1: exactly the same situation in the Sagrada Familia in uh, Barcelona. These great cathedrals, they do allow photography, most of them, but they very rarely allow tripods and they're often low light. So that would take me on. I'm going to give myself a bonus third thing that I look for, which is built in image stabilization because not all lenses are stabilized and especially not the ones that I use I generally use prime lenses because I'm shooting with the smaller formats and if I want shallow depth of field effects then I really want to have uh, a nice bright prime lens so uh, having built-in stabilization is great because it means that you can hand hold re- you know nice low ISOs with ridiculously short uh, uh, sorry long shutter speeds I mean with the Olympus's latest system at a kind of 24 24- Millimeter equivalent wide angle focal length. So, you know, a kind of good wide angle, but not extreme wide angle by any means. I can hand hold that now at one or two seconds. A one or two second exposure, handheld, it transforms your photography. I can now shoot in the blue hour um handheld without a tripod. Sure, I'm not going to be doing those long exposures with neutral density filters, because those are going to be still need to be 30 seconds, 60 seconds, two minutes to smooth out the water. But if I'm just sort of busy around town, maybe I haven't got long. You see people with tripods set up and they're only going to get one shot because that blue out does not last long. I'm getting that shot. I'm going over there and taking that shot. I'm going over there and taking that shot. And it's because this new technology is is allowing me to do that. So I love built-in stabilization. And this is where I feel uh, Fuji is now you know has to be a bit careful because it doesn't have it because of the way they design their imaging circle and um sony has it olympus has it panasonic has it and it just makes such a difference such a difference I, I find it incredibly useful
2: i know that uh, you tend to have a preference for traveling by car when you can uh can you let us know what's so great about driving across country
1: well yeah i mean i um this this was something that i really realized when i lived in new zealand and then moved back to the uk i'm going to say i moved back to europe because i consider myself a european i don't consider myself uh british when you live in new zealand you're very very isolated you can drive around the country although there is a they are there are two islands that are separated you need to get a ferry but you can't really go anywhere else you can't drive to another country um which is the case with a lot of parts of the world but when when i came back to the uk the idea of now i would traveled extensively around europe before i moved to new zealand but mostly by plane i would fly to belgium you know which is next door i would fly to paris i would fly to you know to spain which is obviously a little bit further but you know these places are actually very accessible by road by surface so the first time i did a big driving trip in europe I just fell in love with the idea. I drove from the UK through the Channel Tunnel, which is so quick and easy. You drive onto a train and then the train takes you through and then you 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 get you drive off the train. And and just immediately you're in France and then within one hour you could be in um in Bruges or in Ghent taking you know drinking amazing belgian beer and and taking photos of amazing gothic architecture you could be almost anywhere in france give yourself a couple of hours you could actually reach germany almost um give yourself a you know a good day you could be down in italy or spain and give yourself a couple of weeks say you know a school easter holiday or something like that or a week you could bag about five or six countries and sites in all of them. So it wasn't that, oh, where did you go on your holiday? Oh, you know, I went to went to Madrid for a week, or I went to Barcelona for a week. Well, I went to all of those places, and then I spent a night in Venice, and then I went up to, you know, up through into, you know, through the lakes in northern Italy, into Austria, and then through Germany, and and it, I became extremely addicted to this way of traveling. I absolutely love it. I mean, it's hard work; it is quite tiring, but I do it with my family, and uh, I think they mostly enjoy it. Dad, no more driving today, please, no more driving. I iPads for the kids really helped. Stuff and full of movies, and they're pretty happy. I think um, you
0: you said sometime uh, that you also enjoy the fact of uh, seeing those uh, those parts of those countries that you don't normally see when you you mm-hmm. fly to barcelona and you might see barcelona but exactly. you don't see much of what's around it you don't see what what changes when crossing the border from france to spain how the how things change how the different uh, countryside looks like and,
1: and definitely too. and i love that I love partly the uh, it feels, again, kind of more honest to me that you do this this kind of trip by surface. Again, also, when I used to go to the Grand Canyon in America and I'd be in Las Vegas, everyone I knew would fly over there. I said, I'm going to drive. It takes five hours. I'm like, yeah, but I want to see the scale of it. I want to see get an idea of where it is in the world and that's the same same with this so you get an idea of where you are but again with borders obviously if you've got a a hill or a field on one side of a country and then you, you go over a border inevitably that field looks exactly the same but people are generally very passionate about their identity and where they are and so you'll suddenly see the buildings change the language change the food change you know the customs change so crossing borders is really, really fascinating uh, because you, you you do observe these changes, and that's that's the thing that that's the thing that I love about Europe. Just this accessibility of all of these uh, countries and the ease with which you can you can access them. And obviously, we're going through a bit of turmoil in the UK over that. I think it's pretty clear which which side I fall on in in that regard. You know, I, I love being part of that who wouldn't want to be part of that that you know just the access to all of these cultures to all the food to all the drink to all the people i think it's 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 fantastic and that's what actually drew me back from new zealand to to live uh to live back in this part of the world so yeah i love those big driving trips they're, they're great fun and you come back with so many different photos loads of different pictures and lots of those are, are in the book
0: yeah great and, uh, speaking again of the book uh it contains a few images Few images that might be classified as iconic. You got the the skyline of Manhattan across the East River at sunset, the bridges on the Vitava River in Prague, uh, sunflowers in Spain, the Giant's Causeway, Canal Grande in Venice, the uh, Sagrada Familia, and so on. What's your opinion on this uh, often debated issue? Whether it's advis- advisable to take the quote unquote postcard shot or uh, or not? Do you think it's worthwhile to have them in your portfolio or book?
1: It's a very interesting question that I, th- I think when I was younger, when you went on holiday, you sent postcards to people. Right. They weren't your pictures. they were other people's pictures. And that's how you get this idea of a postcard view. It's the view of the most famous thing in the place where you visited. Right. And you would send that. And then when cameras became kind of more and more popular, you would inevitably take pictures of the same things you know to maybe putting you or your family in front of them or doing a different take on it but sometimes producing pretty much the same picture and that seemed fairly redundant at the time but i think now so there's a few reasons for this i think first of all people don't really send physical postcards anymore do they 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 don't even email photos anymore they post photos socially and hope people follow they kind of push their content they don't push it out they they have it there and they hope that people come to it and have a look at it they no longer push it as an email or as a physical postcard so i think first of all for a while it, it wasn't really that relevant it seemed a bit uh, redundant but now i think it's absolutely fine because people don't buy postcards anymore so it's fine to take pictures of those famous things the other argument is you could say well you know why take another picture of the grand canyon or of the tower you know leaning tower of pisa or venice it's all been taken what's the point in doing it again But that's a bit like saying, what's the point in cooking paella or a curry or fish and chips? You know, it's it it doesn't reduce the joy of it, you know, of of producing it yourself and consuming it yourself. You can try and do something original with it. Um, Inevitably, if you are thinking that way, it will draw you towards street photography, because the only thing that's genuinely new, really, in photography are pictures of people. Because, you know, everyone always looks different. You take a picture, there's always different people around, different fashions. And I struggle with street photography. I'm no good at it. And I do feel that it can be extremely intrusive. But at the same time, people love looking at pictures of people from 50 years ago or 100 years ago. And they go, look, like those Vivian Meyer pictures. You know, look, here's New York. uh, And we recognize the buildings and the streets. But look at the people. You know, look at the clothes they're wearing. It's like they're all in fancy dress. But yet... They're still commuting. They still look a bit moody like you would at that time in the morning. They still want to get across the road or they still want to look. There's that person enjoying that cup of tea. I enjoy a cup of tea. But look, they look different. But yet they look the same. So you can kind of come to this idea that, in fact, street photography is the the only photography that really counts. And that if you're doing landscape stuff, then, you know, you're just repeating what everyone's already done. I can't take a better picture than Ansel Adams. Should I just not bother when I go and visit the American national parks? Well, no, because it's fun. You know I enjoy the process of composing and pushing the button and then you know describing the story as well it always frustrates me when people post pictures socially and they say um here's a picture and you're like I want to know about it tell me about the picture what were your difficulties where is it what am I looking at you know um tell me about it so I think we can always add value to it even if it is a a postcard shot um so yeah, I would, I would still go, I'm i I'm at peace with it, but I do understand that, that, you know, it is arguably as an art form, slightly redundant, but yeah. you know, if you, if you enjoy it. Why not?
0: And just to be clear, I don't want to give the impression that your book is full of those kind of pictures. There's a handful of <laughs> but them. There are,
1: but there the, are the, a few. The, yeah, there are but there a are few a few. And, and, a and, I did des- and I did describe one of them, the Venice shot, where I went back twice as, as the money shot because it's the shot that you want to take when you're at that when you're in that part of town, and you see people lined up and they're all taking the same picture, and that that can sometimes feel a bit soulless, can't it? But you know, it's still it's still fun. You're there. It would seem a shame not to.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, uh, is the it's the fun of it. It's the fun of taking that photo, um, discovering where that place is and just taking it for yourself. I mean, OK, I've got that shot and it came out great. And maybe I will just keep it for myself or for my family. It doesn't have to be that artsy art shot that uh, is different from anyone else's it's, it's uh it's for me and it's it's a lot of fun to just take it and uh another thing is that there's a reason why iconic pictures are called iconic because they are i mean that they they look great some some locations look great and and they still have a market and i was thinking of that that photo i was uh, uh referring to earlier about the the bridges uh over the vitava in prague i've got you've got that picture in your book and i've got a picture that is Okay, pretty much the same, same location, same light, uh, same time of the day. Uh, What's great about that, that I recently sold it to a company that makes puzzles. Right. (laughs) So what do companies that make puzzles want? They want those iconic shots and they pay good money for it. So why not take one? Now,
1: the interesting thing about that picture in Prague... (laughs) Uh, that I didn't realize. First time I went to that location, because the the two challenges with that picture: first, finding the location. You got to go up to that park, and if you didn't know where it is, then uh, then you're a bit stuck. So I found the location, and I got there, and I was like, "Oh wow, the bridges are really far away. They're really small," oh, yeah. Yeah. and I only had like, you know, general purpose like a twenty four to seventy range with me on that first time I got up there, and that's not enough. That picture that I took, I think, ended up being at two hundred millimeter. You know, if you want a nice compressed perspective of them without too much of the landscape around it, just saying, hey, look at all these bridges, then it's really long. So there are still some surprises out there. And, you know, I've, well, not if you read my book, because I can, uh, you know, I, I tell you about that. Um, yeah. So so that, that that was quite an interesting discovery for me that you needed quite a long lens for that.
2: Yeah. true. So uh, what's next for Gordon Lang? What, uh, what kind of workshops, any, any new projects coming up, new books? What, what's what's next on the agenda for you?
1: Well, it's kind of – it feels almost like a kind of factory production line, but I have to keep producing these reviews because that's where where most of my uh, – well, that's, that's how I make a living, so I have to keep doing that. And I do enjoy doing it. So it's really whatever are the next cameras that are coming out. Um, I, at the moment, as as we filmed this uh, this video – I was about halfway through my Sony a nine review. So that's one that I'm really concentrating on. And then, you know, there's, there's more after that. I can't always tell you what, what they're going to be, but there will always be lots of reviews. I recently redesigned uh, the camera labs website. So if you've not visited it, um, say in the, in 2017, please do, please do, because it's completely changed the look. It's finally mobile friendly. It's HTTPS. It's uh, it works. It looks great on small devices. It hopefully looks great on massive screens as well putting a lot of effort to to try and get that right so there's still some work that needs to be done on that so i'm i'm sort of making sure that the website is running really well ramping up the stuff i do on their youtube and the podcasts as well because again people people like that i can tell people to visit camera until i'm blue in the face but if they just want to consume stuff on another platform you've got to make sure that you provide content on another platform so it's all about keeping all that covered but still generally just trying to hunt down the tastiest coffee and the uh, the best cakes in the area and ralph i'm going to be asking you about your portugal uh, tips as well because i'll, I'll be hopefully heading to uh, lisbon later on this year a, a city i've never visited i've been to porto loved that in fact i think there's probably a Porto photo in in the book if not it will be in the next one if there is a next one um so, yeah, if, uh, if anyone's got any food tips, uh, the best pastel de natas, uh, you know, nice nice coffees, things you, like that. You I always want to uh, know. Ghent and Bruges earlier. Mm, and, great uh, city, very underrated city. Everyone visits Bruges and, and uh, Brussels, which obviously great. Uh, but Ghent is like this undiscovered place. Uh, It's a kind of quite studenty city, but it's got amazing cathedrals, bridges, canals, reflections, all the beer and and, uh, Belgian stew you could hope to have. And I hope to have plenty of it. I end (laughs) almost all my trips in Ghent because it's only one hour's drive from the Channel Tunnel. One hour. Why would you fly? Why would you fly there? So
0: maybe you can drive down uh, this weekend because I will be there.
1: (laughs) Well, (laughs) Um there's, there's tips. Oh, I wish I could. Ugar. I wish I could. I love that place, but I can, I can definitely uh, later on tell you some yeah, good places Yeah, tell me to about eat, tips. I'm,
0: uh, leaving tomorrow, flying to Brussels, then spending three days in Belgium, going to Ghent and Bruges and Brussels. Oh, it's
1: really, well, well, there's, there's a, uh, there's a couple of Bruges shots in, in my book yeah, as well. They're just so beautiful. There's so, I w- when I was younger, I was never, I never quite got a handle on uh, Belgium, but now it's one of my favorite places especially with all the Trappist beers which i'm really into um and that you know there's so much to shoot and the food is really really nice and it's again it's just so accessible so parts of france and belgium are always they're very uh they're very important to me because they always represent the kind of start and the end of my big european driving journeys inevitably because they're so close to my point of connecting back to the uk
0: I, I was in Ghent uh, years ago, I mean, maybe 10 years ago, for business reasons, and I, I was really surprised by how beautiful that city is, with the central square, with the three churches, the towers and so on, mm. and the canals. Yeah. And I, I always wanted to go back, so this this year I was planning a trip with the family. Where can we go? I said, oh, we can go to Belgium. We can go to Ghent. I said, what? Where is that? Never heard of that. Well, Trust me, you'll see. It's beautiful. So.
1: Oh, they love it. And of course, you have all the nice chocolate as well. I mean, it, there's so much. There's so much to, to like about it. And they have a lot of, you know, if you're a real foodie, they have a lot of, uh, you know, three Michelin star restaurants as well. I mean, I'm not into that side of things anymore. I was when I was younger, but it's overlooked a lot of the time in favor of places like France and dare I say Italy, which of course has, everyone knows has amazing food, but it's like the first time you go to Spain, you're like, Hey, this, this food and drink is really, really good as well. You know, Belgium's got a, a, an awful lot going for it. Yeah. I'll
0: um, I'll ask you for some directions offline.
1: (laughs) Definitely. Definitely. I'd be happy to do that.
0: All right. So I think we are at the end of this episode. Um, uh, It's been great talking to you. uh, And I knew that you would have a, a lot to share with great passion, as you always do, so uh, anything else uh, you would like to add before we we wrap it up
1: well, on, only that if if i haven't bored you to death yet and you fancy seeing any of my travel photos, <laughs> you can uh, check them out. I post everything on Instagram and twitter i 'm at Camera Labs on both of those. You can find me on Facebook or google plus um, if you're interested in the podcast, it 's called the Camera Labs Photography Podcast. Find out on Google Play or iTunes. I'm on YouTube, obviously, just as Gordon Lang. Uh, but most importantly, if you're interested in any camera reviews, go to CameraLabs.com. That is where you'll find all of my in-depth stuff and buyers guides. And um, if you if you're interested in gear, that that's the place to go. I'd lo- I'd love for you to have a look and let me know what you think.
0: Great, thanks.
1: Thank you very much, Hugo. Thank you, Ralph. Thanks for having me. And anyone who's still listening after this uh, immensely long uh, broadcaster, uh, thanks for staying to the end. <laughs>
2: Thanks for being on the show, Gordon. It's been wonderful. Uh, it's great to, f- to finally meet you and uh, and uh, get some really great information. Uh, I'm looking forward to spending some more time on your website, that's for sure, because uh, I may be in the market for a new
1: camera myself. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. Feel free to contact me with any questions.
2: Okay.
0: I
1: appreciate okay. Bye. that. Take care. Take care. Bye.
0: So that was a really enjoyable conversation we had with, uh, with Gordon Lang here. And before we uh, close this episode, uh, Ralph, what's uh, what's coming up for you uh, specifically? You're still in Lisbon, uh, but I know you're about to to go to Mexico somewhere sometime next. Uh, oh, sorry, sometime later this year.
2: Yeah, so I've, uh, I've got a trip coming up to uh, Mexico's Copper Canyon in August. Uh, this is a place that. Is uh, hardly anyone knows about it, let alone has been there. But uh, I did a, a forty-five day uh, trip for a uh, to shoot for the uh, a cookbook on Mexico's cuisine about five years ago, and we went to forty different locations. And uh, Copper Canyon was the one place that I said I wanted to bring a group back to. It's uh, so interesting. It's bigger and deeper than the Grand Canyon. And it has one of the great train rides of the world right through it Uh, plus you've got the very interesting and elusive tarahumara indians uh, many of whom live in caves and cliff overhangs till this day so uh, over the years we've gotten some amazing shots there it's one of my favorite itineraries Uh, we'll put a link in the show notes to it but uh, this is a great trip because it only requires four people minimum um, typically, my trips are 6 to 11, so uh, this could be a very small group. But if anyone's looking for a, a, a very accessible, at least if you're in the United States, a destination that is uh, off the beaten path, I highly recommend Mexico's Copper Canyon, whether you go with me or someone else.
0: <laughs> Great. We'll put a link in the show notes, as you said. And, uh, but basically, people, where can people go to find more about uh, you and your tours?
2: yeah so people can always go to photoenrichment.com and uh, look for tours there there's a drop down and you can always find me and on all the social networks at photoenrichment and at Ralph Velasco would love if people uh, liked us on Facebook how about you Hugo where can people find more about you
0: well as usual my website is at uh, ucphoto.me and uh, as, as Gordon was saying uh, he uses Instagram a lot so I'm t- using Instagram more and more it's become my maybe my favorite place where to, to share pictures um, and you can find me on Instagram at at ugoce, that's U-G-O-C-E-I um, I try to post at least a picture a day so more content there than, uh, than on any other sharing sites I find it uh, it works really well
2: i'm enjoying instagram a lot too it's just so easy and quick and yeah it's a it's a a great platform
0: great so uh that's it for today and for this week and uh, as always if people uh, like this show uh, please leave us a review on itunes on share it with your friends you can uh, find this episode and all the other ones at ttim.photo so thanks for watching or for listening
2: Now let's get out and shoot.